Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, December 20th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to um, poetsandmuses.com, as well as on our SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. With us today is Jeff Cottrell, with whom I will be speaking about his poem, Wilfer Owen's Off Day, and my poem, I Bought the 18-Inch. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of December 21st. On Monday, December 21st, from 8.15 p.m. Amsterdam time, Labyrinth will be hosting its weekly open mic, and you can find out more information and register at labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash pound sign events. Again, that's labyrinthamsterdam.nl forward slash pound events. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, City of Asylum will be hosting their Viewer's Choice winner, Tallahatchie Lullaby Baby, featuring Doug Kearney. You can find out more information and register at cityofasylum.org. Again, that's cityofasylum.org. From 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground open mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's poets underscore playground underscore. From 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their Ekphrastic Poetry Reading Party with Jessica M. Wilson. You can find out more information by going to lapoetsociety.org. Again, that's lapoetsociety.org. On Tuesday, December 22nd, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting their first draft open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23, which is a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information and register at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 6 to 8 p.m. Arizona time, the Virginia G. Piper Writing Center will be hosting its monthly Veterans Writing Circle with Marco Pina. You can find out more information by visiting piper.asu.edu forward slash veterans. Again, that's piper.asu.edu forward slash veterans. From 8 to 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Alexa Lash and Kiana Major will be hosting their creatively undistanced open mic. You can find out more information at Major Muse, that's M-A-J-O-R-M-U-Z-E on Instagram. Again, that's M-A-J-O-R-M-U-Z-E on Instagram. On Wednesday, December 23rd from 8.30 p.m. Beirut time, Sidewalk Beirut will be hosting their online open mic. You can find out more information at Sidewalk underscore Beirut on Instagram or at Sidewalk Beirut on Facebook. Again, that's Sidewalk Beirut either on Instagram or Facebook. 
From 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting the second of their three Love Letters to 2020 Poetry Workshop with Jessica M. Wilson. This is for those who are 13 years old and older. You can find out more information and register at lapoetsociety.org. Again, that's lapoetsociety.org. On Friday, December 25th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their weekly Speak Your Truth writing workshop. You can find out more information and register by messaging the host, Andrina Leanne, on Instagram at survivor.andrina.leanne. That's survivor.andrena. L-E-E-A-N-N-A. Again, that's at survivor.andrena. L-E-E-A-N-N-E. On Saturday, December 26th, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, the Root Slam will be hosting its virtual writing workshop for those 18 and up. You can find out more information and register at rootslam.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's rootslam.org forward slash calendar. From 9 to 11 p.m. Moroccan time, Moroccan poets will be hosting their open mic via Instagram live at Moroccan poets. Again, that's at Moroccan poets. On Sunday, December 27th, from 5 to 7 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting its open mic you can find out more information at Poetry LGBT either on Instagram or Facebook. Again, that's at Poetry LGBT either on Instagram or Facebook. From 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Pure Ink Poetry, run by our past poet guest Brandon Williamson, will be hosting their video slam. You can find out more information and participate at pureinkpoetry.com. Again, that's at pureinkpoetry.com. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Jeff Cottrell. Hi, Jeff. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Yeah, thanks for having me, Imogen. You brought with you your poem, Wilford Owens' Off Day. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well... My name is Jeff Cottrell. I'm based in Toronto, Canada, and I've been doing spoken word semi-professionally for almost 20 years now. I've done a lot of gigs throughout uh, Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., and since the pandemic started, I've been doing a lot of open mics via Zoom. So that means I've even done uh, open mics in Australia and Singapore. Mm. and other parts of the U.S., and uh, that's been a lot of fun. I've authored and published uh, four chapbooks, and I've recorded three CDs, and I've been working on a novel over the past almost two years now, so I'm doing kind of the final revisions on that, and I'm uh, going to be looking for an agent and or publisher soon. Great. What's it about? The novel. Okay, it's called Hate Story, <laughs> and it's just on, uh, that's, yep. It touches on a lot of uh, controversial issues, actually, which is why I, I kind of worry, you know, will anybody want to publish it? Mm. Basically, um, it starts off with a riot at a funeral. Mm. Basically, there's this, uh, this person, Paul Shortage, who has recently uh, died, 
there's just so much hatred against him that there's a riot at his funeral, and it turns out it's kind of an internet thing. So mm -hmm. it's the book's largely about internet shaming, and my protagonist is kind of this amateur journalist who's trying to find out what's the deal behind this guy. What did he do to make everybody so angry? And she finds out very quickly that there's this like underground internet community that absolutely loathes him and accusing him of stuff. And mm -hmm. so she interviews these very eccentric people who know him to find out about his life and why. The plot structure is kind of a parody of Citizen Kane in a way, where mm -hmm. he's interviewing people from his past trying to find out what his rosebud is, so to speak. Right. The story touches on a lot of controversial issues, like I said, you know, online shaming, false accusations, that kind of thing. Mm. So... Yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. How did you start writing poetry? Oh, I've been writing since high school. I wrote a lot of very bad literary poetry in high school and university, mostly fiction, though. Mm. And then about... 2000 or so, I started going to open mics in Toronto. I was actually reading stories, like fiction. But I saw a lot of people doing interesting things with spoken word, which was kind of new to me. I didn't know anything about poetry slams or performance poetry. Mm -hmm. But I saw a lot of people in Toronto doing interesting things, like Wakefield Brewster, Monica Kubler, Mark Rubinoff. And I kind of looked at it and I thought, yeah, I want to do that too, except I want to do it my way. Mm -hmm. And I kind of developed a style that was a mix of poetry and comedy and theater and I've been doing that ever since, and it's the one creative thing that I've had arguable success at. Like I said, I've done tours in the UK and whatnot, and sometimes been paid well for it. I still write page poetry, but I adapt a lot of it for performance as well, depending right. on how the dramatic potential and whatnot. Right. Okay. Cool. Thank you. Do you remember what you your first poem was, what it was about? My first poem? Oh. That would be going back. That would be like going back to grade school. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, a, I remember I wrote a weird, rhymy thing about Charlie Brown and Snoopy and one of them going to college. Mm -hmm. I remember I rhymed knowledge and college. But that was like, yeah, I guess going way back. <laughs> wow, okay. Wrote, in high school, I wrote a, a series of haikus about snow, okay. which I also remember. Wow. I'm assuming Snoopy is the one who went to college, but I might just be mean to Charlie Brown here. <laughs> so, was there a specific incident that made you decide to turn towards the more comedic subjects? It just comes naturally to me. Even when I was writing short stories in high school and university, I always leaned towards either the comedic or the satirical. Mm. And... Uh, with poetry, you know, I just kept doing the same thing. And, of course, I, I meet a lot of people, like, you know, snooty literary people. It's like, you can't do poetry that way. Poetry is a serious art form, and you can't, you know, it's a pure art form that you can't pollute with humor and da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> I say, why the hell not? Right, right, yeah. I find there aren't a lot of good uh, humorous poets in North America. I think the U.K. has some really witty people, like, you know, A.F. Harold and uh, Jackie Hagan and Clive Oseman. So it's easier to find funny poets over there, but mm. not, not so much uh, here. Okay. That's good to know. I think I have run into a couple besides you. There was a woman who also recited one of her pieces, who, which was quite funny as well. I haven't seen her since, which is a shame, because I was wondering like, if she tended toward humor as well. Um, one, a one-time thing. 
Yeah, yeah, that's what I... I'm dead puppies most of the time. This time I'm going to write something fun. Yeah, yeah, that's... I was wondering about that. That's that's why I was just like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> I suppose that you could make dead puppies funny. I mean, it would be quite dark, it but... There was a funny song about dead puppies in the 80s. Was there? Yeah, look it up. All right, I'm going to have to go into that dark corner of the net, then. Yes, yes, I will. Um, yeah, it was dead puppies aren't much fun. That was the quotes. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it goes on like that. Well, it's kind of interesting because this piece that you brought with you actually is a funny spin on a very serious topic. So why don't we just have you read it and then we can talk about it. Okay. So this is called Wilfred Owen's Off Day. And it's kind of a, it's a poem about writer's block. Because I'm sure everybody gets writer's block. Even the great World War I poet, Wilfred Owen. I'm sure he had writer's block once in a while. So that's what this is about. Yeah. Damn this war! Oh, the pity of it! The pity! What? What pity? It's all just so very, very bad. I just get so sick of it all. So many atrocities and stuff. Those cannons are too bloody loud, and so are the planes. Those planes, they're also plain full of it. Damn this war! Oh, damn this war to hell! I don't like it very much. I don't like all the corpses. Oh, those smelly, smelly corpses. And the fellow marching over there has stupid boots. And the food rations, now they leave something to be desired too. And, and, and we're all bent double, just like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, cursing through sl Wait, done that bit before. All the dead. So many dead around here. Short days ago, they lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now, no, now I'm cribbing from the Canadian fellow. Damn this war! Maybe I ought to throw in some Latin. Dolce et decorum est, conditus mandicare pupillum, nolite te bastardis carborundum, deformis stultis est et infantibus assimilatur, ipso facto veni vinivici, voulez-vous coucher avec mon gaufre et fou? Damn this war! It's all a load of crap and bad things. Like a bad thing that nobody likes because it's so bad. As bad as a, as a piece of stinking war. Damn this war. Fuck this shit. Just shoot me now, you hun swines. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> You're... Basically, humorizing somebody who's kind of a little bit sacred for this genre. Um, yeah, I think the sacred ones are really the, the, the funniest ones, really. <laughs> because if you satirize somebody who's already funny, who are, who's already kind of uh, trivial, it might get a titter, but it won't, you know, it doesn't... But I mean, we, we, we laugh out of shock, I think, when something's sacred or something we're not supposed to mock. When something like that is mocked, it shocks us into laughter, I think. In a serious subject like war, 
you know, there are some people who say, oh, you can't do that. You can't. I've seen terrible things in war. You can't make humor out of war. But, well, Kurt Vonnegut did. He did it, you know, in a respectful way. So uh, why not? Mm -hmm. And I think also people react to different things differently, right? And maybe, maybe they won't listen to the horrors of war if it's not dressed in a certain fashion. It's, yeah. What made you decide to tackle Wilford Owen, of all people? Well, a couple of years ago, I was at uh, my friend Niall O'Sullivan's poetry series in London. For any Canadians listening, I should uh, clarify it's London, England, not London, Ontario. <laughs> but uh, Niall O'Sullivan runs a weekly open mic there called Poetry Unplugged, or at least he did before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I was there a couple of years ago. And apparently he's taught Wilfred Owen in schools or college or something. So he was talking about the difference between Wilfred Owen, some of one category of his poetry, and then he has his done this war poetry. And that's just how he said it. He has the poems that are like, done this war. And I just thought it was really funny that you take this iconic, sacred, you know, poet with these serious poems about the horrors of war, and you just summarize all that in, damn this war. <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be Wilfred Owen when he's just not inspired, when the muse isn't there? That's his off day. That's all he can think of. And from there, the poem came out. And it just, I thought, I thought it was relatable in the sense that we all, you know, suffer from writer's block once in a while. We all have a lack of inspiration. Well, even somebody like Wilfred Owen could have this problem. And uh, just, I started writing it from there. It kind of wrote itself from there. Great. And and he did have, um, I think, when he was finally published posthumously well he did publish a few pieces before he passed away but when most of his stuff was published posthumously there were fragments right i i seem to recall it's interesting to read about his background basically for those who don't know he was quite famous for writing about or bringing to attention to the public, the atrocities of World War One, which very few people knew about, especially through poetry at that time, because people who wrote poetry at the time tended to make the war more glamorous sounding or uh, less atrocious than he did. And he yeah. also was a sort of an outsider because he didn't study poetry formally. He just—he was a very voracious reader. I think it's quite interesting to, to come from that perspective. Because did you study poetry? You didn't study poetry either, right? I mean, it's just. Oh yeah, yeah. I studied poetry. I have a master's degree in English lit. Ah. Um, so most of what I studied, well, I mean, like the Renaissance, like Shakespeare, you know, Renaissance. Right. poetry in place but also i studied the romantics a lot and i i love the 18th century satirists like swift and pope and voltaire mm -hmm. I, I think i was the only one actually who did in my in my class or in my uh, university but i mean i guess i get more influence from them as well mm -hmm. but i guess you know sometimes that matters and sometimes that doesn't i mean like if you, if you don't study it formally but you really read a lot you learn more than somebody who studies it formally but doesn't really take it seriously or has no passion for it. Right, right. And sometimes it can backfire because um, the creative writing program at university that I uh, took for a while, mm -hmm. 
they were trying to mold me into a certain style. They were trying to mold everybody into a certain style, and I just didn't fit in. So right. that didn't really work out. Like they were the fiction classes that I, I took. They were trying to turn everybody into a second-rate Hemingway <laughs> or a second Michael Ondaatje. When what they should have been doing was trying to mold everybody into a first-rate yourself. Right. Right. Exactly. And so maybe maybe Wilfred Owen benefited from not having formal education in poetry. Yeah. That's why you know it's very important for people to realize that poetry, as it's occurring now, as I'm sure in every age, there are the people who formally study it, whether through、uh, under tutelage as they used to do, or in the newer system、um, in institutions, or people who you know are just interested in poetry,、uh, who read a lot of poetry, or they just write. It just verse comes to them as like. Rhyme and rhythm is something that writing in a floral language or, or using a metaphor as all these devices is, comes naturally to them for whatever reason. Because you know there are those people.、Um, well, the best、uh, the best advice for wanting to be a writer is just read a lot and write a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That is part of these MFA programs or English Lit programs is that you get crammed down your throat, lots of lots of reading. It just depends on your style. Kind of comes from what you're exposed to in a lot of ways. Yeah, and if you read a lot of stuff you're genuinely interested in, you will continue reading because you want to, and then your writing style will be more sincere because you're being influenced by things you like.、Mm-hmm. I think every artist really they should try to. Make what they would want to see if they were the audience.、Mm-hmm. So I think that goes for poetry or fiction or movies or music. You know, like all the great popular artists, I think have done that. They've just done what they would want to、uh, read or experience if they were the audience. Yeah, yeah.、Uh, That's how they get an audience. So there's a sincerity in that. Right, right, exactly, and I think people hear the emotions, and that's, I, I, it's funny because I was just thinking the other day because of this old adage for poetry or prose, people tell you to write what you know, but I, I think it's more about for me, it's more about writing the emotions you know, you know, rather than about. Necessarily, the occurrences you know. I mean, you should do your research, obviously, but、yeah. but you don't necessarily have to have firsthand experience in everything to be able to relate to the emotional aspects because we all have very similar basic emotions.、So. Well, that's kind of in a way that's what I was doing with this poem because I've never been in war, right?、Mm-hmm. So I don't know war firsthand, but I do know what it's like to write. And I do know what it's like to have a lack of inspiration. So that's the that's the right what I know part. Yeah.、And、the war part is just you know where where Wilfred Owen was. That makes sense. So I can definitely understand you coming at it from you know the entry point is what you know, and then go into the less maybe the less comfortable areas of war where you don't have the experience. I also wondered how much research did you do into. His background in terms of writing this piece. Almost none. Yeah.、Um, I am not a Wilfred Owen expert or scholar, but、uh, I was familiar, obviously, with his most famous stuff, like Dolce and Decorum Est, and、mm-hmm. his other stuff. And so I used that as a jumping-off point. So I quoted the poem, like "We're all bent double, just like old beggars." When he starts coming up with inspiration, but no, I've done that before. That was Dolce and Decorum Est. <laughs> 
And then uh, I kind of stole ideas but made them silly. You know, all the smelly, smelly corpses instead of the brutal imagery he had in his poems. I just, all, all the corpses, smelly, smelly corpses. And I don't like this guy with the boots and making him kind of a whiny little bitch because mm-hmm. he can't. He can't think of actual inspiration. And then I uh, I also cribbed from, for another joke, I cribbed from um, In Flanders Fields mm-hmm. by Tom Gray. And so I did that. It's like, oh, no, I'm cribbing from the Canadian film. <laughs> so uh, basically going from what I'd already known about Owen and from other war poetry and use that. Mm, yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting because I was reading more about his biography that a lot of his writing comes from, well, he, he did poetry, of course, and he met some famous poets while he was trying to recover from what's known as in modern day as... Um, PTSD. Thank you, PTSD. And... Shock. Right, it was called shell shock, shock back then. And he had met this very quite famous poem, Sassoon, I think his last name. and Siegfried, I think, Siegfried Sassoon. Uh, yeah, I think so, because he, he had a very German-sounding name, which is really interesting. Um, like, German-sounding last first name and French-sounding last name. <laughs> and, uh, which is sort of like the embodiment of the war, <laughs> in some ways. Um, Brings people together, just like Zoom. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like, because he wrote to his mom a lot about the war, about the horrors of war. And there is a plaintiveness about his letters. So I don't feel like it's such a stretch to see him having this sort of, like, a lack of inspiration day and just not being able to think of ways to explain what is going on in a more eloquent way. I wonder if... If uh, you've read this in front of knowing or not knowing of veterans and people who have been in war, or, or even people who know Wilfred Owen's writing well? Okay, well, I'm sure I've read it in front of people who know Owen's writing well. As far as reading in front of veterans, that hasn't happened with this specific poem, but I did recently have an experience like that with a writing workshop, a Zoom writing workshop. I just wrote a, a short piece about war, and it was just a joke. It was a pun, really, mm-hmm. that ended with a pun. The other people in the workshop thought it was funny, but there was this one older guy who was like, you know, I was in Iraq back in 91, and I saw some horrible things over there, and I just thought that piece was, was you know, very offensive. Mm. triggered me. And, well, that changed the whole mood right away. Right. But uh, the, basically the instructor kind of said, well, we understand, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, you, you have your experience. And then she private messaged me like, oh, don't worry about it. It's out of line. You're, you're great. <laughs> but that is the risk you take in general with humor, I find, that there's always going to be somebody who's triggered by something or doesn't see the humor because of their own experiences. Humor is a very subjective thing. And for me, it's a continuing learning experience. What offense you. I mean, I once I had a, I used to have a comic bit about Shakespeare, and it defended somebody who they said who said to me, "Well, I revere Shakespeare, and you don't do that kind of thing with Shakespeare." <laughs> Even though it was just a silly thing I did with a puppet, Shakespeare. She was like, "I had to go away from the stage, closer to the bar, just to get away from that because I revere Shakespeare." You never know you just, what people will be offended by. It's, 
Yeah, I, I think there's a definitely a large gray area when it comes to humor, and it is very subjective. And also, in some ways, it's subjective according to what kind of experiences you have. And certainly, as much as I think it's important to poke fun of war in terms of, especially this hero worship that we have. Um, like in all the movies, it's basically, all action movies is basically a mini war. Now more so than ever. It's just like, oh, let's destroy a city. Let's, this is pretty yeah. much standard plot line. Right. And, and that's how a lot of people, I think, when they go to war, they think it's going to be like that because of movies and stuff like that. Yeah. When, you, when you said about when Wilfred Owen was uh, exposing the horrors of war, when, you know, everybody was saying how glory it was. That reminded me about how the media in the U.S. covered the Iraq War, you know, and the Vietnam War, even, when they were like, you know, weren't talking about the horrors. They were talking about, oh, we're going to be gung-ho and be liberators and whatnot. And they were avoiding saying, you know, what was really happening, that all these people were dying or getting or losing limbs or, or uh, you know, getting PTSD or whatever. So, I mean, even with the media, that's a big thing. Yeah, I think media and self-censoring definitely comes in. Even now, it still comes in as people don't want to think somehow in a quote-unquote justify war that somehow people are committing war crimes that goes against the principle of the very people who are trying to bring, let's say, democracy, speaking from an American sense, to another country, right? This idea of, and this, the irony in general of forcing democracy down somebody's throat, it's kind of just like, yeah. what? You know? We're going to make it free whether you like it or not. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Going back to the humorous bit as well, it, is that because uh, Wilford Owen is so revered, because he, bring, he did bring the horrors of war to light to the public, especially since most of the fighting men at that time, as it is still now, the tradition is that those without means go into war. Joining the military as a solution, if you're poor and you have no you know, marketable skills, joining the army is seen as a solution. And you don't really immediately think about, well, I'm going to get killed in a war. You think about, oh, I'm going to get the high pay, I'm going to build my body up and become athletic and I'm going to have something to put on a resume when I get out. It's a, it's a means to an end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think for a lot, some people, and it's, it's not a matter of having or have, not having marketable skills. It's more like not having the outlet to demonstrate those skills, not having the proper educational support to be able to sort of nurture those skills into being. You get a lot of people who, who sign up for the military because they think that's the only way that they can get education is that they risk their lives, they come back, and if they are at least physically intact, then they get the education. And, exactly. Yeah, and, and I think that's quite a lot to trade you know, to, to risk your life and your well-being, uh, no matter what, even if you come back intact physically, that, that you're risking your well-being in order to get something that really is to society's benefit to give everybody. 
some people feel like they have no choice to do. Like, you know, this is the only way out. I better do this or do nothing. Just go nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And and it's sold, obviously, as this, even in Wilford Owen's day, it's sold as this, you know, rah-rah. I mean, that's why he wrote this Doce Decorum, as because the line is to to be proud of going to war, to to think of it as serving your country, to part of patriotic duty to serve in wars that you have no hand in starting maybe you don't even have a you don't have any beef with the other you know people that you're killing yeah yeah i mean that's a, it's a theme that's been covered in a lot of poems and books as well like there's all quiet in the western front yeah. you know famously about you know people going off to war and thinking of the glory and stuff and they get there and it's nothing but horrors and violence and it just changes them timothy finley's the wars is a, a, about that too to some extent mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a war that changed a lot of people's impressions of war. I'm not an expert on the history of it, but that's my impression, that the World War One changed a lot of people's impressions of war in general. It's not a glory thing, it's just horrors. And I think that was partly because of the machinery that was used, like machine guns and the planes, which just expanded on the horror and made people really see, wow, this is what war really is. As opposed to, like, older wars where it was just, you know, rifles and uh, gun, you know, the... the what do you call the things on the, the sharp things on the guns? Bayonets. Bayonets, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Or it's just you think of individual deaths. You don't think of mass deaths. So I think that's a big part of you know how World War One changed everybody's view of war. I don't know in terms of journalism if it changed how the war was covered. Definitely, there there were so many like millions of casualties. The the horrors of trench warfare. I think it's one of the the first modern wars, and I, I forget. But yeah, yeah that, that sounds accurate to me because, like, yeah, again, the, the, I think the major, the one major American war before that was the Civil War, which, of course, was full of horrors and whatnot, and, yeah. but not on the same scale. Yeah, and again, it was dressed in this morally, like, good against evil in a way that. And it is still dressed as that for good reasons, yet it erases the everyday horrors of the war, which I think, despite the fact that she has her a lot of prejudices of her own, I think Margaret Mitchell does tease out some of this in Gone with the Wind, um, in the horrors of war, even if you know her writing is very problematic. But... You could say the same thing for D.W. Griffith mm. with Birth of a Nation. Except even more racist. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know if it's even more racist. I think he feels more racist because he was like the first famous film. And it is it was taught because cinematically speaking, it was such a beautiful film. Um, it was oh, yeah. such it was a... Yeah. yeah, it's such a cinematic achievement. It's sort of like watching the Nuremberg, uh, uh, you know, whatchamacallit. Uh, oh, Triumph of the Will. Yeah, yeah, what's her name? Uh, was it? Lenny Riefenstahl. Yeah, yeah. That kind of goes back to this idea of, you have these artists who are problematic people, yet they are geniuses in terms of their art. What do you do yeah. with that? Because you cannot divorce the person from their art. And 
that's still a big question today because of like Roman Polanski and you know Woody yeah. Allen and Brian Singer. Well, Brian Singer, I don't know if all of them are great artists, but people like his movies. Yeah. But uh, there's a certain if you really sincerely love film or literature or whatever, I think you kind of have to compartmentalize. You have to, you know, this person is a bad person, but they also make great art. And it just shows you don't have to be a good person to make art. Sometimes quite the opposite. Sometimes the evil in you can inform your art, as it did, does with Polanski's, I think. Yeah, and even Woody Allen's, because you can see if you go back to his older, well, all of his films, it's very narcissistic. And I don't think people... Narcissistic's a little different from what he's been accused of, but... Yes, it's, it's true, but I think without the narcissism, he might be able to empathize more with his victims, is what I'm saying. And it's right. that narcissism, that egotistical streak that kept him away from understanding, oh, maybe I shouldn't groom this person who is my daughter, even if it's not biological, you know. So that's the aspect. But I wonder, though, in modern day, if we should demand more of artists or we should, we should at least try to raise those artists who are both decent human beings as well as great artists because I don't think they're exclusive, you know, one with the other. Right. I mean, I, there's a lot of, you know, good people who, uh, I guess, talented artists but never got anywhere because they didn't have the ambition, I guess, or they didn't have the drive but right. they, that they should probably be celebrated more. But also um, opportunity, I would say, besides uh, drive and ambition, I think... True, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think the fields are very narrow, the gatekeepers are few, and they are perpetuating certain visions. When you have that, then whatever their view of the world is being represented, and that becomes problematic because very few people are basically directing our the public's focus even worldwide focus especially in the in the hollywood or bollywood sense because those are two giant filmmaking industries that has worldwide reach and so you know in there are very few people uh in those who make these like large decisions on what the world gets to see and that is very problematic because it only brings out certain narratives. And then because we're being raised as people being raised in modern day by cinema, by TV, by media, in many ways, we inadvertently perpetuate whatever their vision of the world is. Yeah. Nowadays, it's just superheroes, superheroes, superheroes. That's Hollywood's vision of the world these days, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly in the big blockbuster movies get that. It's a lot of visuals. It's a lot of good against evil. There's not yeah. much nuance. And, and it's very, again, very problematic. And I think that's where, you know, humor and satire comes in to poke fun of that idealism and to bring yeah. another view. And yeah, burst the bubble. You know, burst the bubble they're in. Yeah, yeah. And even somebody who you might think of as sacred as Wilford Owen gets a jibe or two because it's, it's good to be able to say, well, we should, you know, I, I think 
it also brings people's attention to their work as well because uh, I don't know that everybody who read poetry would know a Wilford Owen. I think having that humor and to look up some of the references because you keep some of it obscure and just making people look up Latin, for instance. <laughs> it's in- yeah. So, it's yeah. because, um, like, watching Looney Tunes cartoons where they did parodies of Rossini operas and Wagner operas, mm-hmm. that got people interested in classical music when they were kids. You know, I hear people saying that. And for me, uh, the same thing watching SCTV, growing up watching SCTV, where they parodied, like, popular television at the time, but they also parodied Ingmar Bergman films and mm. Fellini films and stuff like that, and that was the seed of my interest in foreign movies. Right. I don't know if that's always the intention of it. Sometimes maybe it is the intention of it. I love, you know, I love this kind of movie, so I'm going to satirize it. And it gets you interested in, in those things, and you'll, it's educational in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's what good satire and humor does. It makes you think about the underlying subjects. It actually highlights the underlying subjects. It makes you want to discover more, to find out, you know, tease tease out your curiosity for someone that you might not have known about or not familiar with. It was really interesting reading it, and definitely the writer's block aspect. As you said, I think a lot of people can relate to it, especially now, because I've heard, I don't know if you heard the same thing in your workshops, I've heard many people who basically said, I can't write right now. Interesting. I've heard a lot of people say they can't read during mm. the pandemic. They just, like, even, even the published writers and whatnot, and people who normally read a lot, they say, I haven't been able to read a full book since this began. Mm. Whereas I found that I was still reading a lot, but I couldn't bring myself to try anything new or challenging. Mm. So I was going back and reading Vonnegut and Stephen King and stuff that was easy and familiar. Mm. So I still wanted to read, but I couldn't. I didn't want to put a lot of effort into it, I guess. Right. Yeah. For the writers as well, I think if, especially for those who need more like peace in order to write. I've heard a lot from, again, uh, just like you said, you know, uh, like award-winning poets who cannot, just like can't put anything to the page at this moment. That's what I've been hearing a lot from from, from people. So it's- The workshops I've been taking like, have helped me. Um, I've been taking some, a weekly and a couple, and one bi-weekly workshop that's helped me oh, that's write great. stuff. And of course, the Zoom poetry thing has been inspiring me to write new poetry and new spoken word material. So I guess it depends on where you look for it, where you look for inspiration and motivation. Yeah, and I think it's just a stress level as well. Many indigenous poets that I've spoken with are having a very hard time because they're also dealing with a disproportionate number of deaths in their communities. Right. So, you know, if you're constantly worried about not only your own health but the health of your family and friends then i can imagine that they might not have time and if you're constantly going to funerals uh, i can i can imagine they're being bombarded with so much emotional stress that they're not able to have the, the peace they need to like channel that stress into more artistic means 
that reminds me actually of uh, Wordsworth's definition of poetry, I think, was, or how he described it, emotion recollected in tranquility. Mm. So it's like, yeah, they're busy with the grief and with funerals and whatnot now, but it could potentially be great, and I'm not trying to be insensitive to that, obviously, but I'm just saying it could potentially be great inspiration for writing later down the road when they're more distanced from it. Yeah. Kurt Vonnegut, uh, when he wrote Slaughterhouse-Five, he still needed like 20, 23, 24 years of distance from World War II to write about it. Mm. But when he finally got to it, it was, uh, you know, it was a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just it, because as it stands right now, I mean, Canada has done well, because I think there's been no deaths for a little while now. Um, but we've done a lot better than the state, that's for sure. Yeah. In Ontario, there's a bit of it's going back up again, right? Because our premier wanted to open up businesses a little too soon, and now we're starting to feel the effects of it. So uh, we're not done with this by a long time. Right, right. Yeah, de- definitely. People, there's still mistakes. People get um, kind of let down their guard because of the ability to have a little bit more control in the U.S. As you know, where. We're number one. (laughs) We just hit 200,000. Yippee. You know, it's, it's, it's horrendous. It's just horrifying. Yet we have someone who's still holding rallies without masks. You know? I know, but he does not care. Right. He does not care. Yeah, somehow his base is just glued to him. I'm just like... You know, he doesn't care about you. I don't know. I don't under. I mean, I, I always thought of it as a, as an abusive relationship. And it really just seems like that. It seems like maybe his base has got Stockholm Syndrome or something. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good description of it. Yeah, it's an abusive relationship for, for sure. But, I mean, he's a con man. He's always been a con man. Yeah. And um, it's amazing that people still haven't caught on. Or at least his base. I mean, most of us have. But, I mean, his base still they're just that ignorant and i don't know if it's just a lack of education or you know or flawed education or just being alienated from i don't know i don't i don't want to smarter people because that sounds so condescending but i i guess people who um are more worldly i guess i don't know what it is because i i think people have different motivations they come at it at different angles while I agree that he is a common, I I do not think he's a very good common man. He's very transparent. He's just been incredibly lucky. It's like he's Domino, you know, that character. He's, the, he's failed in success. I mean, he's not even as rich as he makes himself out to be. He's failed with the universities he tried to found. He's, he's gone bankrupt so many times. Two failed marriages. And, you know, even when he won the presidency, he didn't win the popular vote. Right. And uh, he's just failed in success over and over again. Yeah, and I wonder if it's in that that people identify with him. The the failures, people wanting a pass, and they see in him somebody who's failed over and over again who get a pass over and over again, get many passes. A man basically has failed up over and over in his life. He is the post boy of failing up. Huh. And I, was, I thought it was ridiculous when he was uh, in the election against Hillary 
and everybody was saying, well, Hillary's such an elitist, and Donald Trump is one of us. And, of course, no. I mean, Donald Trump is, like, living in gold palace room, like gold rooms with gold furniture and stuff, and just totally separate from the people he pretends to speak for. Yeah, and he's... Yeah, and he hates those people. He literally hates those people. And Hillary, I think, was more, yeah, middle, middle, middle class, I guess. Um, that's her background, and she's gotten rich over the years. I mean, there, there are very valid criticisms about her, her handling of certain things that I don't agree with. At the same time, in terms of qualification, just like leaps and bounds, man, leaps and bounds. Um, I remember when uh, the day of the U.S. election, I put a Facebook note and said, okay, American friends, uh, in front of you, you've got two plates. I think the, the plate on the left has broccoli, and the plate on the right has cast, castor oil laced with arsenic. <laughs> so I know you don't like broccoli, but broccoli is good for you. And the other plate has castor oil laced with arsenic. So what are you going to choose? <laughs> of course, what did they choose? We like our poison. What can I say? <laughs> Again, it, I think it's more people are are able to relate to the emotions that he brings. We are fools if we discount those emotions. And they are important, and there are obviously underlying issues that do need to be addressed. He is right in saying that Washington is a swamp. What you know, people didn't realize. People who believe him then is that he was going to join that swamp but bringing this back to poetry and our particular poems your poem poking fun of more uh, Wilford Owen's writing but who also tended to write about war basically that was his main subject made me think of my poem which has this hyperbolic sort of comparison between something that's completely ridiculous and using terms of warfare um, right. it's called i bought the 18 inch and i'm going to read that now right. large pizza and small woman make for a curious combination people stare as if spectating battle royale betwixt stow and teeth i hate to disappoint so i unfurl my strategy methodical and the pie is reduced by an eighth in increments, though this is war for the long haul, not some surprise siege on an unexpected weak hold. So you may not have the stomach for the drawn-out massacres. Might as well be on your way in search of other oddities while I commit my atrocities against plants and proteins all to dissolve in an acidic bath. After all, I'm not a slob who leaves behind evidence. Well, perhaps some oil stains and there's the cardboard castle for the cleanup crew. This is why we recruit mercenaries who will overlook shipping manifests as they haul cargo. Soon no trace will remain but carefully chosen trophies of distended stomach and sonorous rancid burps until the inner beast hungers again for the next conquest. Yeah, so what struck me about this, and again back on the topic of satire, is that you have a, a strong mock heroic tone. 
all the way through this. Because again, like you said, it's about a mundane kind of event. You're eating a pizza. But you attack it with military and violence, you know, military imagery, battle, war, siege, strategy, massacres, atrocities, conquest. And uh, that's uh, that's similar to what Alexander Pope used to do a lot in the 18th century. He would write a, write a mock epic about a trivial event, or at least he saw it as trivial, satirizing. Mm-hmm. Is that what you were thinking of? Were you, were you thinking of a specific satirist or humorist that influenced the poem? I wasn't. That's the th- <laughs> the thing is, I literally was writing about eating pizza, but obviously, uh, I do read a lot about politics, and I am anti-war, if you can't tell. <laughs> and and for some reason, and this was not planned out, it just came out. And I have more than one poem where I'm writing about food, but is it really about food? <laughs> like, <laughs> combination and even the uh, even the title 18 18 inches that made me think of a gun caliber although that's probably unintentional because with gun calibers they usually metric right nine millimeter whatever 18 millimeter i'm wondering yeah that's definitely not intentional as well but okay clearly there there are these thoughts in my head i wrote it last year <laughs> since the election well be, even before the election but it's become much more obvious since the election that it's just chaos upon chaos and now an avalanche of chaos this year. So I wonder if, you know, because I'm living in these times and I am anti-war and Afghanistan and Iraq are some of the longest wars that this country has been involved in, that is in the back of my mind, just from the things that I read. So while it's unintentional, I, I think even when I'm reading it, I'm like, yeah, this is must be what I was thinking about because I, I do more free writing and, and stream of consciousness, and this is what came up. So Now, was this inspired by a real incident, like a real pizza meal, or were you just hungry? No, no, it was inspired by a real pizza meal. It was inspired actually by the look of people so there's an event that i used to go to when we back when we (laughs) i'm talking like you know back when i was young we used to go to real physical events Um, (laughs) yeah yeah it feels like the before time certainly there was um open mic there was no food at this particular open mic and i went to a pizza place that had really good pizza and I literally did buy the 18 inch because it just made more economic sense you know (laughs) so I bought that with full intention of basically taking it most of it home and putting it in the fridge and having cold pizza for the rest of the week or something and I brought it to the event which is a more on the literary level event and they were just kind of looking at me like And I had to kind of eat it, and I was very self-conscious of it because it, pizza smells, which you do not realize until you're in a quiet setting where people are le- reading their on-the-page poems, and you're trying you're trying to just like satiate your hunger. Meanwhile, the smell is just coming out, <laughs> you know, filling the small room. So I felt very conscious about it, and that's why I wrote this poem 
but then it turned out to be, in some ways, a critique on war. You know, it's sort of like I, what I was doing with my poem where I had more atrocities of war being juxtaposed with a silly, whiny poet who can't think of what to say about it. And here you've got the atrocities of war being juxtaposed with the eating of a pizza. Yeah. And one thing I, I thought about is, like, pizza in particular. Like, we all love pizza, but if, if it was a different kind of food. Like, if it was pasta or mac and cheese or stir fry, would it have taken a different direction, do you think? I wonder because I wrote a poem about an apple. There was some a lot of death to it. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. Food and death. This is a. It's like Hitchcock. Uh, Hitchcock movies. He would juxtapose imagery of food with murder and whatnot. So I wonder, like, what's the psychological relationship food and death there? Well, to me, philosophically speaking, when we're eating, we're killing something. Whether you are a you have a plant based diet or you know protein. A animal-based diet or a mix, you are killing something. We are, we are always killing something in order to stay alive ourselves. And I have problems with people who basically said become vegetarians or vegan because they don't want to exploit animals because somehow animals have faces that. In some ways, that that are cute to us, are worth more than just life in general. There is some kind of hierarchy to life. And how do we know that, really? How do we know that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and also there is science over the past few years that when worms go to chew leaves, plants will shrink away from that. Really? Yeah. Um, the scientists actually played the sound of worms chewing leaves to plants, and plants were shrinking away from that. That's what they showed really? in the study. Yeah, it's it's amazing. You oh. you gotta go look it up. I think it's similar to how we are able to go to war, right? It's the othering, it's the othering of people, it's the othering of our own species. Just they look a little different, they, you know, they're culturally a little different from us, but essentially we are all similar in the sense that we all want to live a good life and we want to be able to provide for our children and make sure that they live a better life. And and, and obviously I'm skipping this the abusive parent uh, <laughs> talk. So, but the idea is that you know, we have some very similar underlying interests all across, uh, with people all across the world. Yet, in going to war, we have to do this othering to the point where we can say, yeah, let's go kill them. And I find the similar hierarchy in the way that we choose beings for our foods. It's like, okay, we can eat plants because they can't talk to us. We can eat bugs because, you know, they don't look the same as us. We can eat uh, other mammals because, you know, they're not our, of our species. So all of these rationalizations in many ways, whereas we're killing a life. Let's just be honest here and say we are killing a life every or many lives when we are eating in order for us to sustain our lives, even thrive. 
And I think maybe if we looked at it that way, obviously different stimuli works with different people, but I think if we look at it that way for many people, maybe we would appreciate our food more. We would not waste as much. We would appreciate perhaps the lives that are lost in order for us to sustain our lives. Now, the one, uh, the literary reference that this reminds me of the most is uh, in Douglas Adams' uh, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Mm. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Douglas Adams. But, uh, Not at all, actually. They say this thing where they go to the restaurant in the universe and they read an animal that actually wants to be eaten. And mm. Arthur Dent is, like, revolted by this. And the, and the animal is, like, on the plate going, well, would you like a taste of my shoulder? Would you like a taste <laughs> Arthur's like, can I have a green salad, please? <laughs> and the animal goes, well, uh, we talked to the guard, and they're not very happy about that. <laughs> so I, I don't remember you know, the exact lines, but it's, it's along that kind of level. Like, we never think about causing plants to eat vegetables because the plants don't show our, their pain in a way that we pick up on, the way animals do. Yeah, yeah. And even if they don't have pain, you know, the fact is we're still killing a life. Yeah. And so I always find that uh, interesting aspect, especially when I talk with people who, you know, want to move away from eating cute animals into eating plants. I'm like, still alive, still alive. <laughs> so um, Arthur Dent sounds actually, like, familiar that he's the uh, protagonist in all the uh, Hitchhiker's novels, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, okay, that's why. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so this is this is um, the same author then. Douglas Adams. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of the books. It's okay. the second book in the Hitchhiker series. Okay, okay. I'm terrible with names. Like. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm just like, I don't remember the name. I can tell you the story. If I tell you of a great restaurant, I can't, can't tell you the name of the street. I have to physically take you there. That, that's me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's ironic, right? But I remember Arthur Dent for some reason. I was like, that sounds familiar. I don't know why. <laughs> Such a memorable character in his bathrobe and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I haven't read this series. Oh, funny stuff. Well, the first three books, anyway. Hmm. So thank you so much for, you know, sitting down with me today and chatting about both of our poems. I really appreciate your time. Before I let you go, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about your favorite virtual open mics now that you might recommend or workshops you might recommend. And if you have any events coming up and then also how people can follow you on social media. Well, online, I can be followed at jeffcontrol.com. I've got MP3s and videos there and lots of other information and whatnot. I'm easy to find on Facebook and Twitter. And I have short fiction published uh, at blakejonesreview.com. Okay. A couple short stories there. Okay. And uh, com. I post kind of work-in-progress fiction, including a preview of my novel, Okay. About the first six chapters of Hate Story there, okay. along with a couple other uh, short stories. Okay. And wh what is your, do you want to tell us your Twitter handle? And did you say it's, Facebook as well? I forget. Yeah, I'm easy to find on Facebook. My Twitter handle is Jeff underscore Cottrell. Okay. 
Did you want to recommend any workshops or open mics? Oh, there's lots of open mics uh, happening on Zoom right now. Some of the ones I've been going to regularly are uh, Poetry at the Brew, which is based in Nashville. That happens Saturdays at uh, 6 p.m. Central Time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a pretty popular one. A lot of uh, British poets actually come to that. Mm. And they call themselves the Midnight Poets. Because <laughs> yes. it's midnight in Britain when it starts. Right, right. I also go to Nomadic Press's open mic in San, not San Francisco, uh, Oakland. Mm -hmm. uh, that happens uh, Friday nights at 6 o'clock Pacific time, which is 9 o'clock my time. Uh, there are lots of great uh, UK ones going on. Run Your Tongue is every two Thursdays. Who Be High, that is uh, twice a month. Well, like, I think they do a slam once a month and a full open mic the other time. Mm -hmm. And uh, Oh, there's lots of great stuff. I have been sometimes doing an Australian one uh, Monday evening, but that's actually Monday morning in North America. Mm -hmm. It's called That Poetry Thing. Mm -hmm. That happens in Canberra, Australia. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, there are so many ones, so, so many going on, but those are the ones I've been going to regularly or semi-regularly. Oh, that's great. Thank you for that. The one I mentioned in Australia, That Poetry Thing, that is half Zoom, half live. Oh, so cool. they actually get together in the, uh, in the pub socially distanced, but they have a screen showing Zoom people, so the ultra open mic alternates between live and Zoom, and the features also, sometimes, the features that I've seen have been on Zoom, but I think they do live ones too, so they've kind of got half and half, and I'd like to see more of that happening in the future. Yeah, yeah, me too, I'm hoping that people will incorporate Zoom or some kind of remote access to, to open mics. So thank you again for your time. I really appreciate the conversation and us, you know, reading poetry together. Thanks for having me. I had a good time, too. Great, great. I'm glad to hear that. The article I was referring to actually talked about plants releasing mustard oil in defense against caterpillars. And they did that in reaction to hearing a recording of caterpillars chewing on other leaves. You can read that article as well as another one about how scientists are doing experiments to see how plants react to different kinds of sounds in the episode notes. As always, you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.